0: What a privilege for me to be able to share with you this morning. I don't know, how how do your neighbors feel about talking about money in church? Did, Did you figure that out? Did you get any responses? It's interesting. Every day we receive a myriad of messages about money. Anywhere from financial professionals to commercial advertisers. To our Facebook friends, everyone is telling us what to do with our money, but what does God say? What do the scriptures have to say? We might be surprised just how much of the scriptures talk about money. We're looking at continuing our series at NLCC in the book of Luke. And actually, we're, we're coming to the end of the book of Luke. But over the next four weeks, within the context of our series on Luke, there are four different passages that we want to take a look at that deal specifically with money and what Jesus said about money. So today we're going to look at Luke chapter 19, which is the parable of the Minas. Let me set a little context for you here. Jesus has just had an encounter with Zacchaeus. You know, Zacchaeus, the wee little man, climbed up into a sycamore tree to save you for it to see. And Zacchaeus, after encountering Jesus, him being a tax collector, despised by many of the people around him, had a total, total change in his life. So much so that he said he would give away half of his possessions and repay four times whatever he had cheated people of. Boy, you know salvation has come to the house when it hits the bank account. So Jesus has met with Zacchaeus, and they're now on their trip to Jerusalem. And the followers of Jesus are really excited about going to Jerusalem, because they've been with Jesus now for about three years of ministry, and they think this could be the trip. This time when they go to Jerusalem, this could be the moment that he sets up and establishes his earthly kingdom. And Jesus says, whoa, step back a minute. There's some things you need to know. You see, Jesus told this parable, and it tells us right here in the Scripture why. Because he was near Jerusalem, and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. Just another thought. Jesus is in the last days of his life here. So he's giving us some of his last teachings. Those things that you would think would be most important. It's interesting, the parables that he shares. Nearly half of Jesus' parables address this topic of stewardship. There's a consistent theme among them all. The master's going away. He entrusts what he has to his stewards, knowing that he's going to be away a long time. The master returns. The master always returns. And upon the master's return, those left with the resources that he entrusted to them are called to give an account. And he rewards those who have been faithful, and he takes away from those who have not. And those who are expecting his return, living for his return, are always rewarded. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 19. Begin reading at verse 11. While they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell them a parable, because he was near Jerusalem, and they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. He said, a nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. And he called ten of his slaves and gave them ten minas and said to them, do business with this until I come back. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. But when he returned, after receiving the kingdom, he ordered that these slaves to whom he had given the money be called to him so that he might know what business they had done. The first appeared saying, Master, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, well done, good slave, because you have been faithful in a very little thing you are to be in authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, your mina, master, has made five minas. And he said to him also, and you are to be over five cities. And another came, saying, Master, here is your mina, which I kept put away in a handkerchief. I was afraid of you, because you are an exacting man. You take up what you did not lay down, and you reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, By your own words I will judge you, you worthless slave. Did you know that I am an exacting man, taking up what I did not lay down and reaping what I did not sow? Then why did you not put my money in the bank and, have, and having come, I would have collected it with interest? And he said to the bystanders, Take the mina away from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Master, Is ten minutes already. And I tell you, that to everyone who has, more shall be given, but from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. This is the word of the Lord. It's interesting. Jesus' audience would have Been able to relate quite easily to this parable because they had just lived through an event in their lives where Archelaus, the son of Herod the Great, had gone to Rome seeking to be declared king over Judea. But there was a delegation of the Jewish people that went to Caesar Augustus and pled with him not to let that happen. And Archelaus came back as governor, but not as king. studies have revealed that, as John said, one of the main reasons people don't come to church is because they feel that the church is always hopping on money. According to one stewardship expert, uh, more than half of pastors fear that they'll be viewed as self-serving and merely seeking to raise their own salaries if they preach or teach about money. But ironically, in secular culture, They're talking about stewardship quite often, only they use different terms. They they talk about the economy, the environment, charity, getting in shape, time management, money management, all different terms for stewardship. Even in the church, the word stewardship has lost its value. It's often been relegated to capital campaigns, where they're trying to raise money for a big capital project, or we have a stewardship committee, and it's, their job is just to simply manage the money, make sure it doesn't get wasted, which is all good. But that's not what stewardship is about. And it's interesting, just as a side note, there's a historian who uh, wrote a book called My Gospel of Stewardship, and he traces in old England that a steward was a protector or caretaker or a ward of the pigsty. And the old English spelling evolved from stigweird to stigward to steward, supposedly. And so stewardship became a dirty word. But I think stewardship is a good word. I think it's a word that we need to redeem today. And I want to share with you some thoughts about stewardship. And just as a side, the word mina, that was a a kind of a currency that they had in Jesus' day. It was worth three months to 100 days' worth of salary. So if we took the average Canadian salary today, and a mina would be worth about $15,000, somewhere around that. So this is what he gave to each of the ten servants. But the first thing we understand, and this is fundamental to any understanding of stewardship, you will never grasp what it means for stewardship if you don't get this one fundamental point. God is the owner of everything. Everything comes from God, everything belongs to God, God is the owner. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it the world and all who live in it. In this parable Jesus places himself in the parable as the master as the landowner the followers are his servants. I am admittedly a sports junkie. Anything with sports you come to my place the TV's usually on as either a hockey game or a football game or a baseball game or you name it. I love sports. Probably one of my favorite movies is a movie called Rudy. Anybody ever seen the movie called Rudy? Yeah, some of you had. It's a a story of a young man who is trying desperately to get into the University of Notre Dame so that he can play football on the famous fighting Irish football team. But his grades are not that good, and so he has to go to a junior college. And while he's there at the junior college, he goes to see the priest of that university. And he says, If I do everything I can, Father Kavanaugh, will you help me? And Father Kavanaugh replies, There are, in my years, 35 years of religious study, I've come up with only two hard, incontrovertible facts one, there is a God, and two, I'm not him. There is a God. He's the owner. He's the creator. And by virtue of that, he owns everything. John Wesley put it this way. He said, when the possessor of heaven and earth brought you into being and placed you into this world, he placed you here not as a proprietor, but a steward. None of what we have is our own, not even the ability to create wealth. When the children of Israel were going into the promised land, Moses said to them, listen, when you get into the promised land and your crops start to grow and your herds start to increase, don't forget God. He said, you may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me, but remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your forefathers, as it is today. We don't even own ourselves. If we are followers of Jesus, Paul reminds the Corinthians, you are not your own, you were bought at a price. We have surrendered everything to God, our very lives. A baptism symbolizes that. Pastor says to a person being baptized, "When you go under the water, everything that goes under belongs to the Lord." <laughs> We're not here on our own business. We're managers of the possessions and the affairs of another person. a king who owns everything. We're here on his business. Stewardship is managing things well, yes, but it's managing things with a purpose, the kingdom of God. Stories told of an elderly lady who had determined that she would be prepared if something ever happened to threaten her life. One day she was out shopping. She had finished shopping and was returning to her car. and She saw four men getting into the car. She immediately dropped her shopping bags. She shouted out, I have a gun. I am ready to use it. Get out of that car. Well, the four men with startled looks on their face jumped out of the car and took off as fast as they could. And the dear lady, somewhat shaken, loaded her bags and got in the car and couldn't get it to start. The key wouldn't even fit. It dawned on her, it wasn't her car. So she did what she had to do. She loaded her bags into her own car, which was four stalls down, and drove to the police station to turn herself in. The desk sergeant, when he heard her story, nearly fell off his chair laughing. He says, Just down at the end of the counter, there are four frightened men who are reporting that a carjacking took place by an old woman with thick glasses, curly white hair, and carrying this huge handgun. (laughs) You see, she thought it was her car, but it belonged to somebody else. Sometimes we get all bent out of shape and frustrated trying to keep and defend what we think is ours. People ruin their lives over financial rights, inheritance squabbles, suing people they think have cheated them. God is calling us to think differently, to think as stewards, to faithfully manage what He gives to us. A rider came galloping up to John Wesley one day, and they said, "Mr. Wesley, I'm sorry, but I have terrible news. There was a fire, and your house is burnt to the ground." Wesley. Paused for a moment and said, No, my house didn't burn to the ground. God's house did. I just have one less responsibility. That's not just a pious thought, that's a different way of thinking of our possessions. God is the owner. We are called to be stewards. Fully surrendered to the owner, the steward thinks only of what the owner wants. His vocabulary is different. He doesn't talk about me or my or I. He's much more about him and his. He doesn't ask how much of my money do I give to God, but how much of God's money am I going to keep for myself? He asks other questions like, does, how does God want me to use his house, his car? How is this next purchase going to honor God? How is it going to advance the kingdom? The point is, stewards think differently than owners. Let me give you five different ways. First of all, stewards are grateful. Owners feel entitled. Every day is a gift. Every moment is a gift. Every breath is a gift. I'm grateful for what I have. I do not complain about what I don't have. Paul told the Thessalonians, he said, give thanks in all circumstances for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Stewards are grateful. Secondly, stewards are content. Owners never have enough. If I believe that I, everything I have is a gift from God, I can be happy and content with it because God gave it to me. I don't resent or envy what others have. I don't belittle what I have. And that's the same whether I have little or much. Paul received a gift from the Philippians, and in sending a letter back to them, he thanked them. He said, Not that I was in need, but so that I could hold something to your account. And he says, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. How many have seen that last part of that verse on plaques and pictures and walls and trinkets and everywhere? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But notice that that verse was originally given in the context of money. How many of you have seen that verse inscribed on your credit card? (laughs) How many of you, when you pull out your Apple Pay, that's the first thing that pops up? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. See, there will always be someone who has more than I do. We're called to be content as stewards. Contentedness means... I'm also at peace with whom God has made me to be, even if it is follicly challenged. So much of our identity issues today could be settled if we were content with whom God had made us. Came across just recent, just the other day, a quote by a lady by the name of Andrea Kapayan who serves on the board of the Center for Steward Leader Studies. She said, it is profound that God daily challenges us with this struggle between contentment and deprivation, between need and greed. This isn't a mountain he wants us to conquer. It's a constant exercise and regular practice. And that's comforting. My continual surrender to God's transforming work is essential if I wish to be a good steward. By his guidance, I learn how my demands and discontent contaminate and enslave me and others. And by his power, I can experience something new. I can become more of who he created me to be. I can find an everlasting provision that God gives me more than enough. So stewards are grateful. Stewards are content. Stewards are generous. Owners, so tight they squeak. We can only be generous givers when we truly believe that God is the owner and that we are stewards. How does a steward determine his giving? Well, let me give you an example. Suppose I was the bookkeeper in a large company and I was responsible for payables. The boss tells me to write a check of $10,000 to pay the hydro for the month. The boss tells me to write five more checks, $3,000 each, to cover payroll. Do I worry about that as a bookkeeper? No. I write the checks. The boss has told me to write these checks. I don't even need to worry whether there's money to cover it. I don't need to worry about my salary. I'll still get paid. I write the checks. That's the same way we should feel when God asks us to give. It's his money. If he says I should give 10%, I give 10%. If he says I should give 23 and a third percent like they did in the Old Testament, I'll give that. If he says gives more, I'll give that. See, my responsibility in giving is to ask God what he wants me to give of what he has entrusted to me and then to be faithful and obedient to do it. God determines my income and my outflow. You see, Ron, how much should we give? Tough question. I think one of the best responses I ever heard was from C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity. He says, I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditure on comforts, luxuries, amusements, etc. is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we're probably giving away too little. If our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they're too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because our charitable expenditure excludes them. So stewards are grateful. Stewards are content. Stewards are generous. Then stewards are aggressive kingdom builders, owners, build their own kingdom. Remember how we said society will substitute the word stewardship for various other things, like environment, charity, getting a cheap, time and money management. But notice that all of those words have a focus on preserving, preserving the environment, preserving our time, preserving our money. Whereas in the kingdom, the steward thinks in terms of giving and multiplying. Notice in our text, when the master gave each of the servants their mina, they were instructed to put this money to work. Here's our little Greek lesson for the lay, for the day. The word used in verse 13 is pragmatuome. It means to conduct or be gauged in business. And in verse 15, it expands that word a little bit, diapragmatuome, and says to gain by training, to earn. These two words are unique to Luke. And they emphasized the business nature of the first century stewards. They were to make resources grow. They were to make them work for them. They were to use those resources to create financial gain. And the purpose was advancing the kingdom. Advancing the master's work. The expectation is that when it comes time to give account for what has been entrusted to us, we will have more than what we started with. One last characteristic of a steward. The steward has one job. You ever seen those pictures where a guy's painting the, uh, the lines on the, on the road, and the line will be going down straight, and then there'll be a rock, and the line will go like this, and then it'll keep going. And the caption underneath the picture is, you had one job. But you let a little rock get in your way. Paul says to the Corinthians, Moreover, it is required in students, stewards, that one be found faithful. We have one job to be faithful. Boy, doesn't that simplify things? Doesn't that give us a great deal of freedom? We are simply to be faithful. Randy Alcorn, in his book, Money, Possessions, and Eternity, puts it this way. He says, as stewards, we manage assets for the owner's benefit. And we carry no sense of entitlement to the assets we manage. It's our job to find out what the owner wants done with his assets and then carry out his will. If we focus on the master's rights, we will fulfill our responsibilities. But the moment we begin to focus on what we think we deserve or what we think our master or others owe us, we lose perspective. The quality of our service deteriorates rapidly. Our preoccupation is with responsibilities, not rights. And notice what he says. Our job is to find out what the owner wants done. This requires a closeness to the master This requires an intimacy with God to know what the master wants, to know the heart of God for what he wants to accomplish in this world, to get a glimpse of the big picture that he's working with and how we fit into it and how our finances fit into it and why he has entrusted with us the things that he's given to us. We need to know the heart of the master if we're going to be good stewards. So God is the owner. We are stewards. There are faithful stewards. That's our one job. But we remember from the story that we read, the parable that Jesus told, the third servant was not faithful. What can keep us from being faithful servants? That servant told us exactly what it means Verse 21, he says, I was afraid of you. In this parable, fear is presented as the opposite of faithful and shown as an absence of trust. He didn't trust the master. Now, we may never actually say that we're afraid of God, but by our thoughts and our actions, we show that we don't really trust him. The servant did not understand the true character of the master, a character that was proven in his dealings with the other two faithful servants. He was even called wicked. I mean, that has fascinated me. You look at the, a, a similar parable that Jesus tells in Matthew chapter 25, the parable of the talents, and, and it calls him a wicked, lazy servant. I mean, the guy did not abuse the funds. He did not misuse the funds. He did not do anything that would have been illegal or immoral or anything like that. He simply just buried them. And he's called wicked and lazy. You see, the underlying issue in all of our stewardship, according to the Scriptures, is trust. God's challenge to us is simply, do you trust me? And he makes this question intensely practical by making the test a physical one involving our money. But why should we trust him? Because of his promises. In Philippians 4.19, it says, And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. In Corinthians, the same Paul tells the people there, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. God meets our needs to put us in a position to be generous. But fear drives so many of our decisions. And it manifests itself in a couple of divergent ways. There's the fear of not enough. I'm afraid I won't have enough to put food on my table, to put a roof over my head, to put clothes on our back. I'm afraid I won't be able to look after my family. I'm afraid I won't have enough retirement. So what does that do? It makes us hang on, makes us pull back, makes us some even to the point of hoarding. So it's fear not enough It drives us to hang on to what we have. But there's a fear of missing out, the fear of not appearing successful. I want the latest car in my driveway because my neighbors want to see that I'm successful. I want to live in the best house in the best neighborhood. I want to dress with the latest trends because I want to appear to be successful. And I'm afraid that if I don't, nobody will like me. Well, friends, that causes us not to hang on to stuff, but to spend more than we have. In fact, we spend money to buy things we don't need to impress people who don't even like us. (laughs) See, we demonstrate our trust in God by letting go, by releasing control, and we do that by giving. Generosity is the antidote to greed, and to consumerism, and to not trust. Earlier in our study of Luke, we found Luke 6.38. It says, given, it will be given to you. Pressed down, good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over, will be poured into your lap. For the measure you use, it will be measured to you. God's message is this. Trust me, I will take care of you. And though we don't actually physically see our master in this world, we know that he's with us. We know that he's generous with us. We know that he entrusts us with gifts, with wealth, with opportunities, with a gospel message to share. And he says, fear not, I am with you always. Earlier in Luke, we read a passage that said, no servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one, love the other, he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Fascinated by that last phrase. Jesus could have made any kind of comparison there. He could have said, you cannot serve God and the devil, and we'd have understood that because they're natural adversaries. But he didn't. He could have said, you cannot serve God and self, because sometimes self gets in the way of what we do. But he didn't make that comparison either. Of all the comparisons he could have made, he said you cannot serve God and money. It was like he knew money had the potential to be that other God in our life. Clearly this is intended to be an either or, not a both and. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. See, this is a spiritual matter. When Jesus said, Where your treasure is, your heart will be, he made it a spiritual matter. We decide what is a treasure, our heart follows after. And if we want to have a heart for something, we put our treasure into it. Let me close with one other thing here that sometimes doesn't get talked about when we talk about stewardship. We talk about the responsibilities, we talk about God being the owner, we talk about us being stewards. There's one thing that we sometimes forget. God rewards good stewardship. We live as stewards out of our relationship with God, out of our closeness to Him, out of our trust in Him, and at the risk of sounding like a salesman selling knives on the shopping channel, but there's more. Notice what the master said to that first faithful servant. Well done, my good servant, his master replied. Because you've been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. It's funny how we can trust God with our eternal salvation, but we have trouble trusting him with that paltry paycheck we get every couple of weeks. When speaking about rewards, let me be clear, we're not preaching a prosperity gospel here, you know, a blab it and grab it, name it and claim it, increasing my personal wealth. Any increase should be first considered as an opportunity to increase our generosity in the kingdom. Nor are we teaching that our earthly wealth is a sign of our great spirituality. How much we have is not an indication of our spirituality. How we manage what we have is an indication of where our heart is in relationship with Jesus. The wealth we are given on this earth is to be enjoyed as gifts from God to be shared with others. When the owner speaks of being trustworthy in a small matter, he's stating how small the earthly responsibilities were compared to the eternal responsibility that the servant ended up receiving. For faithfully managing one mina, One teeny, meany, mina, he was put in charge of ten cities. The other one was put in charge of five cities. And even beyond that, I think the responsibility is in comparison to the short time that we have that responsibility. We're entrusted with wealth here on earth. Let me give you an example. What if I offered you $10,000 $10,000 to spend today. Everybody said, yeah. Or, I offered you $10 million in a year from now and every year thereafter. Only a fool would take the 10000 What we're called to responsibly manage here on earth is, as the Master said in our verse, a very small matter compared to the rewards that God has for us. You see, a steward who is faithful in what has been entrusted to him, the reward is far greater in comparison. Jesus is teaching the surprising truth that God uses our financial stewardship to determine how much he can trust us with spiritual matters and with eternal matters. Randy Elkhorn again says, What you do with your resources in this life is your autobiography. The book you have written with pen of faith and the ink of words will go into eternity unedited to be seen and read as is by the angels, the redeemed, and by God himself. When we view today in light of the long tomorrow, the little choices become tremendously important. Whether I read my Bible today, pray, go to church, share my faith, give my money, actions all graciously empowered by, not by my flesh but by, my spirit, by His Spirit, it's of eternal consequence. Not only for other souls, but for mine as well. God is looking for people He can trust with spiritual riches. For people He can trust as rulers of His coming kingdom. And our stewardship testing starts Early. Children are tested when they get an allowance. Teens with part time jobs are being tested. Our money, our management of money continues through our working life and even on into retirement. God is looking for people he can trust with real eternal things, and he uses our management of entrusted money and possessions in that evaluation. So every financial decision is a spiritual decision. Stewardship means a whole different way of thinking. The person who serves faithfully will be rewarded. And lest I be accused of pie-in-the-sky religion, let me say the following. Paul reminded Timothy to teach that God richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. He commanded them to be generous in laying up treasures in heaven so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Sometimes we think that if we do God's will, we're taking a vow of poverty. We'll never get another day of enjoyment in our lives. We lived in Quebec for a number of years. And every year when you file your income tax, you have to file two forms, one for the federal and one for the provincial. And on the provincial one, they asked you a question. It says, have you taken a vow of poverty? And me being in mission work, I always wanted to reply, no, it's just worked out that way. (laughs) God's not looking to deprive us. God's not looking for us to get the short end of the stick. Stewardship's not about what we have or how much we have. You look in the scriptures, it never talks about how much. It's about what we do with what we have. Some are called to live frugally. Some are challenged to live with abundance. That's all up to God. And remember, a steward has one job, to be faithful. That is so freeing. It fills us with such joy. If we're faithful, we can fully enjoy whatever God entrusts to us. Finally, from one of my favorite books of the Bible, Ecclesiastes, a man can do nothing better than to eat and drink And find satisfaction in his work. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? Living as stewards doesn't automatically mean that we give up on all the good things of life. What it means is we give up control and stop pretending to be owners. A stewardship mindset does not mean that we don't enjoy good things. In fact, it probably means that we enjoy things more knowing it comes from the hand of God. So friends, here's the question for us today. What is there, if anything, in our lives that we have not yet given up control of? What one thing are we hanging on to? In what areas of our lives are we having a hard time trusting God? When we raise our hands to worship God, is it with a closed fist? Hanging on to something? Or is it with an open hand, freely, in love, offering all we have as a faithful sword. Let me pray. Father, we are so grateful for your word that teaches us, that instructs us, but even encourages us, that provokes us to good works, that calls us to trust you, Oh God, we pray a prayer of repentance this morning. Asking your forgiveness for those areas where we have not trusted you. Help us from this day forward to set a path where we will discuss all these things with you. And you will give us the strength and the courage to be faithful. Let us claim the promise that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And we pray this prayer as your stewards. Lord, set me free to live joyfully, trusting in you. Teach me to love. Remind me that all of this is yours, Lord, and I give it all back to you. Make me more like you in every way and help me trust that all I have from you right now is all I need for right now. I love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.